I'm going to be reading from Matthew 13, 10 through 17. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever, ha whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You, you will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed, with, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The kingdom of God is like a lobster fisherman. who hauls in his trap full of lobster and hauling in his catch, he divides them, throwing some back and keeping the ones that are the right size. So shall it be when the Son of God comes. Jesus of Nazareth was the greatest, I would argue, teacher of all times, probably one of the most influential teachers in human history, regardless of whether you consider him divine or not, whether you have religious affiliation or not. But there's something unique about the way that Jesus taught, and it's the fact that he taught with parables. Now, Jesus didn't invent the parable. Many of us know what parables are because of Jesus, because Jesus really is the one who mastered them. I listened to an expert in ancient Judaism this week who talked uh, with various rabbis, Jewish rabbis, who studied the literature of Judaism that's included in the Old Testament and even the writings around Jesus' time and after. And he said, parables were common, but no one handled the parable the way that Jesus did. If we want to understand the teachings of Jesus, if we're a people who want to be shaped and formed by who Jesus was and what he said, we need to be able to wrestle and make sense and deal with his parables, to be able to understand his teaching in this way. And, and whether or not we actually kind of wrap our heads around it and understand every parable or not, it's important that we immerse ourselves in them that we meditate on them so that we become people who are shaped and formed by our time in the teachings of Jesus. So to that end, over the summer, at least in the months of June and August, we are going to be teaching through the parables of Jesus here in Montague. Now, part of who we are as a multi-site church uh, often we are preaching the same sermon series together. So if you're here when we were working through Revelation in the new year, all three Cornerstone sites, we were preaching that together. Phil and Gordon and I, we were working on our sermons together for that. Same with our Life and Doctrine series. But often during the summer, we have some freedom kind of at our own unique sites to 
to head in different directions with our preaching. And so this summer, we are going to spend a good amount of time in Jesus's parables in June and August. Now, you may remember from last week, I, I said that the month of July, our services are going to be down at the Montague Waterfront. We're not going to be here. And so we're going to do our own unique sermon series for the waterfront. But the rest of the summer, June and August, will be in the parables. Now, when I was a kid growing up in Sunday school in, in, in the church that I was a part of, the parables for me were always like the children's stories, right? I was part of a church where during the service, like the kids were with the families during the service, and before the kids went down to Sunday school, the minister sat down on the steps and like all the kids came forward and like I still came forward while I was like 14, like a bit too old, you know what I mean, to be coming forward for the children's story. And like, I wanted to sit on the steps, not like down in front of the, the minister. Anyway, that aside, for me, the parables were always like the children's story of Jesus's teaching, right? The thing that can like entertain and teach kids because we're not necessarily going to wrap our heads around like the pros and the, the other ways that he teaches, but the parables are what we teach the kids, right? They're like the children's stories. They're the things that are in the coloring books that we color, but I want to argue during this series that, that the parables are much more than the children's stories. The parables aren't just like Jesus is teaching light. They're how Jesus taught. In fact, some people have talked about the parables like, oh, the parables are Jesus' sermon illustrations. No, they're more than that. They're more than just a supporting way of fleshing out a teaching. They are the teaching. There's something so unique and special with how Jesus taught in parables. The way that he taught and used story as a way to connect with us. I've been reading a book by a guy named Klein Snodgrass. And listen, <laughs> the poor guy. I've come across some funny names. But Klein Snodgrass is up there. He has written like the book on the parables. It's fantastic. He calls the parable stories with intent, stories with a purpose. Another famous New Testament scholar, a guy named C.H. Dodd, has a definition of the parables I have up on the screen that I think is really helpful for us. He said, he's, he's a Welsh guy from the early 1900s, he said, at its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I love that definition because I think it captures so much of the complexity of what Jesus' parables were. They're more than a sermon illustration, more than a children's story. They're a metaphor similarly. If you remember from, from middle school English class, Right, a metaphor or a simile, a simile is when you compare something to something. So the kingdom of God is like, that's a simile. Or a metaphor is when you say Jesus is the lion, that you are taking the imagery of that and applying it to Jesus. It's a simile or metaphor drawn from common life. So when I opened with my kind of homemade parable of the kingdom of God is like a lobster fisherman, it's something that is drawn from everyday life from our part of the world. 
that many of you, whether you grew up in fishing families or you fish yourself or you just, you just know the culture, that draws all kinds of things up for you. There's a vividness and strangeness to the parables. There's, there's something unique about them, something that stands out. And there's a nagging ambiguity. There's something like Dodd says, leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application as to tease it into active thought. That Jesus isn't coming right out and saying, this is this and this is this, and all of it makes sense. I'm just giving you a list of facts. But he's teaching in a way where we're going to have to chew on it. We don't know exactly what it means when we first hear it, but we're going to have to ponder it and meditate on it and sit with it for a bit and let it stew. This is why it's important for us, especially if we are churchy people, if we grew up in the church, if we went to Sunday school, if you've been around church for a long time, this is why it's important for us to not check out when it comes to a series on the parables. Because for me, typically when I think of the parables, it's like, oh, I've heard them all, I know it, you know, we've gotten there and move on. But there's something about the parables that we still need to chew on it and meditate on it. And there might be something there that Jesus is trying to get at that we've overlooked that there are ways that he was speaking in the common life of the people that he was talking to that we're going to miss because we're not first century Jews in Palestine. There are things that we are going to learn whether we've, we're hearing these parables for the first time or for the 5,000th time. So lean in. A question that people are, are trying to answer all the time about this topic is why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did he choose parables? Why didn't he just like, here is the syllabus of my teaching, here's what we're going to cover, check this, all right, here's these facts, here's the kind of backing up arguments, blah, 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 we'll pass the test, it'll be great. Why teach in stories and parables? Why let there be ambiguity? Why teach in this way? I think it's because story is important. Story is an important part of what it means to be human beings. In fact, we are people who crave story, to be part of story. When we look at our own lives, we, we fit ourselves into a grander narrative. In fact, much of what our Christian faith is, is seeing, wow, here is the big story of God and his world, and this is where we fit in it. We long to see story, to be part of story. And story connects with us in a unique way. It's the reason why we love a great movie. It's the reason why no one has ever called a chemistry textbook a page turner. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good novel that is, right? That you can't put it down. It's because you're, you're bought into the story. It's gripped you. I see it in my preaching. Like when I'm telling a story, you guys are engaged in a way where if I'm talking about other stuff, half you are asleep. I see it. But when I'm telling a story, like I could be laying out this kind of theological discussion and like half you are nodding off, but the minute I tell a story about my kids, you guys are leaning in. 
I don't know. This is proving my point, though. Jesus chose to teach through story. And, and here's why I think he did it. Story is helpful for our memory. I, I read various uh, two different psychological journal articles this week that talked about how people are more likely to remember something long-term if it is couched within story or narrative than if they're just trying to memorize a list of facts. Klein Snodgrass, from his big book, he said that we learn faster by memorizing a list of facts, but we store information longer if it's in a story. And in fact, some of these journal articles were saying that um, people are more likely to remember the gist of a story and retain it accurately over a long period of time uh, if it's couched in a story. And they, they argued for the reliability of the gospel narratives based on that, that Jesus taught in these parables. And people are more likely to remember these parables accurately than if it was just a list of information. Now, we have our own theological ideas of inspiration and whatnot, but I found that very interesting. And one of the reasons we can remember and carry on the teachings of Jesus is because much of it is in the form of story. We remember it better. The second is story connects with the imagination and our emotions. If Jesus was just kind of laying out a systematic theology of these are the right things to believe and the right ways to behave, if all of it was just like that, it would be easy to just, okay, I agree with that, uh, I'm wrestling with that, but I'll get to it at some point. I can check the boxes in my cognition. It just becomes knowledge. But when Jesus' teachings are in the form of story, it engages our imagination. Those of us who, you know, are left-brained and very analytical and logical and, and rational that way, we love the list, right? But not everybody learns that way. Some of us who are right-brained are, are kind of the more artistic and imaginative kind of people, and we need to learn in those kind of ways as well. That Jesus, in, in some ways, saw the, the broad spectrum of the people who were going to be listening to his teaching. And understood that, listen, some people are going to need the, the Sermon on the Mount kind of walk through. You have heard it said this, I'm telling you this. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Other people are really going to need the story and that thing that sparks their imagination and speaks to their emotion. That is going to connect in a meaningful way. What's beautiful about that too is is it shows us the value in God's eyes to our imagination. To be able to imagine the scenario of, of the, the Samaritan walking between Jericho and Jerusalem, who's attacked by the robbers. There, there's, there's a world that we create in our minds that we have to flesh out. There's something beautiful and amazing that God gave us the kind of imagination to wrestle through his teachings like that. And I think this goes back to our idea of the parables are something that we get to chew on and revisit over and over and over. That there are always levels of imagining and, and emotional connectedness with these teachings that are going to be there. Something also very unique about the parables is the parables 
able to get past our defenses in a way that just giving a rational explanation may not. But let, me, let me give you an example. When I was in Bible college, I was a... I was... I was foolish and angry and divisive. I was very strong in my particular theological perspective, and anyone who was kind of outside of my bounds, I was quick to label you or discount what you were saying or your ideas because they didn't line up with what I thought. I could easily say, here are my theological points, here are yours and how they differ from mine, label you outside, right? But there was something about hearing these people that I disagreed with on these different theological points who were going out into the streets and were, were loving the homeless and caring for them. Who were sharing Christ with people and seeing people respond in faith to Jesus. Who had dynamic and real and alive prayer lives. And when I, when I was hearing these stories, whether it was from people that I was in college with or people through a church history that I de- disagreed with theologically, hearing the story got past my defenses of, I disagree with you on this and this and this and this so we can't be friends. All of a sudden it becomes a, wait, they're my brother or my sister. Like they're being used by God because of this aspect of their story. There's a way where the story gets in behind my defenses in a way that if we're just comparing theological points, it's not going to work. I think Jesus was a genius about this in his day. There were a lot of people who had a lot of different ideas than him. A lot of different ideas of what the kingdom of God was or what the Messiah was supposed to be or what it meant to be a good Jewish person. Instead of Jesus just giving these theological points that were just going to be thrown out and dismissed, he spoke in parables and got behind the defenses. On the other side, I think Jesus also used the parables to cloak his message from those who were just out there to get him. Jesus had a price on his head. There were a bunch of people waiting around just for him to say the the wrong thing in their eyes so that they could accuse him for it and put him to death. Jesus' parables were a way of saying things without saying it. To getting to his point and communicating it without saying the buzzwords that were going to set everyone off. It bought him time, so to speak, to let his ministry grow and expand and his, his teaching and influence of the kingdom of God where he was at to grow before the cross. I think this is why he taught. This is why why the passage that Haley read earlier is so interesting to me. When the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 13, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you has been given to know the secret of the kingdom of heaven. Because the knowledge I'm reading in a different translation. Let me read from the screen. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you and not to them. Now, this may sound like Jesus is all about like, 
these people can be the insiders and everyone else is the outsiders and the insiders get, get, get and the outsiders, sorry. But I think what Jesus is actually getting at here and we, we see this coming right after the parable of the sower and the soils where there's the, the fertile soil and the hard soil and the soil that is covered in thorns. I'm not going to dive into it because that's another week in the parables. But he, he is explaining this right after that parable in a way of saying, there are many people who have very hard hearts. Those who have no interest in my teaching and they're not going to get it. In fact, they only want to listen to me to hear me say the wrong things. But you guys get it. You want it. You are longing to learn from me. And so what I am saying you're going to get because you are listening to the parables with that intent. To those who are listening with hard hearts, you're not going to get it. It's not going to make sense to you until you are listening in a way where the penny is actually going to drop and the Spirit does His work. Many of those who listen to Jesus' parables listened with hard hearts. What we need to do is make sure we are people, as we read and listen and receive Jesus' parables, that we are listening with a posture to receive from the teachings of Christ. That it's not about trying to disprove, not about trying to, to, to paint Jesus into a corner, not about trying to accuse Jesus of, oh, you are promoting this ideology, but no, let me receive what Jesus has to say and let it impact me. There's a moment um, in the movie The Dead Poet Society. Have you seen it? Robin Williams' movie. And he's this kind of unorthodox private school teacher that comes into this kind of uppity boys' school where he is supposed to teach English to these boys. And he goes in, and they're starting a unit on poetry. And they open up kind of the first page of their poetry textbook, and he has one boy read the, in, the introduction. And the whole introduction is like, this is how you analyze poetry. When, you know, the correspondence of the analogy is, you know, this on a graph and that on a graph, and kind of graphing the, the beauty and the superiority of one poet versus another. And, and Robin Williams' character, he says, tear that out of your book. Tear out that introduction because that is not how you read poetry. You analyze it to death. And I want us to be careful as we dive into the parables over the summer that we don't analyze the parables to death. Where we go so far in trying to draw correspondences with every like, oh, this is what... You know, the kind of soil that, that this was and this must mean this. And, well, the, the owner of the vineyard is this person here, but is it this person here? And I wonder what kind of grapes they used. Like, there is, a, there is a way where we can miss the forest for the trees with the parables. In fact, to go back to Klein Snodgrass, I have a picture of them. This is in his kind of Snidegrassian language. The more you spend time trying to deduce correspondences, the more likely you will miss the force of the parable. 
The power of the parable is in the moment when the obvious givens of the analogy or insight of the analogy exact transference. At such moments, correspondence is obvious. To bring it into English, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't overanalyze it and try to draw lines between every single thing in the metaphor to the point where you miss the point. I think for a lot of the parables, if we read them with a heart to learn from Jesus, they're going to hit us. They're going to speak to us. We spend good time studying them and learning from them and trying to set aside our like 21st century Kings County PEI way of reading and try to be as best of a kind of first century Jew reading Jesus' teachings and learn from him. But there's a point where we can overdo it as well. The parables are something to be received, to be chewed on, and to let the Spirit speak to us through them. So let's give it a try. Matthew 13, 44. This is the shortest parable, so that's why we're doing it this, this morning. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Let's just chew on that for a second. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Something that Snodgrass pointed out to me about this, and he knows all the Greek and stuff like that. We're not going to get into that. But he said, maybe the best way to read this in terms of how the Greek is structured, is to not say the kingdom of heaven is the treasure necessarily, but the kingdom of heaven is like this event. The kingdom of heaven is like an event where a guy finds something and he's willing to give everything in order to have it. The hidden kingdom is like that, beyond compare and worth whatever is required to participate in it. That's what good old Klein said. The kingdom of heaven, if we're chewing on this, is present and awaiting recognition of its value and the radical action it deserves. We see in this parable an intense value that's placed on the kingdom. Something that's worth giving everything up for. But maybe we could also read this and say it shows the great cost of the kingdom. That I would lay down everything to be part of it. But what we read in this is that the man who found this treasure with joy went and sold everything. Think about the other teaching that Jesus has where he is in an encounter with the rich young ruler. I don't know if you remember it. Where this man says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you kept the commandments? And he says, yeah, I've kept them all since my youth. And then Jesus says, go 
sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Do you know what the rich young ruler's response to that was? He walked away sad, grieving, because he had much wealth. What a contrast here to this parable of a man who with joy sells everything he has because he's seen the value of the thing that he's found. This is the one thing where the high cost is actually worth because of the value of what's gained. It is the opposite of lumber right now, where you will pay through the roof for a two-by-four. This is worth the high price. This is something that with joy we respond to give everything to be part of. It is the one thing worth giving everything up for. In fact, it is the only thing worth giving everything up for. We may think of Jesus' teaching of, if you want to be my disciple, lay down your life. Pick up your cross and follow me. He says, no one who leaves father or mother or houses or land will not receive tenfold in my kingdom. That there's something about what Jesus offers that is worth more than anything else we have. What's so interesting to me when we think about this is this this follows the pattern of Jesus. That there is something that for us to actually see what it is worth is worth us giving everything up for. Giving our lives, giving our wealth, giving, giving everything we are over to God for it. This follows the pattern of Jesus because Jesus in coming as the Son of God to earth in human form, taking on our humanity, living among us, and ultimately giving his life innocently on a criminal's cross saw the value of our redemption worth giving everything up for. His invitation to follow him is an invitation to follow that pattern. To see what he offers as infinitely valuable. As we kind of close up our service this morning, we are going to celebrate communion. And this is this beautiful, tangible reminder of the fact that that Jesus saw our redemption, us being brought back into the relationship with our Creator as worth everything. Worth His own life, worth His blood shed on the cross, worth His body being broken and tortured for it. So I want to turn your attention to the plates in front of you on your table. I want to invite you to take the piece of bread that you have. Have someone at the table grab it and I want to invite you to break it. Just like on the night that Jesus gathered with his disciples for the Last Supper. When he took the loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. He had them all eat from it and he said, do this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to invite you to take a piece off the bread to pass it to those at your table, 
to each get a bit. I know some of you are at big tables and you've got a small uh, roll. That's all right. And as we eat this bread, we are eating remembering that our Savior found it worth giving everything for us to be with him. Christ's body broken for you. We read that after the supper, he grabbed a cup of wine. We're going to use grape juice. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. A new covenant between God and humanity in my blood. That I'll drink it again with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's drink this in remembrance of Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you saw your creation. The men and women and boys and girls and the created world that you love deeply, worthy of giving it all for. You're a God who didn't leave us on our own in our mess, but came down into our mess with us and for us. Jesus, would we see the value of your kingdom and being part of this great renewal that you're doing as worth everything as well? <clears throat> Jesus, would we be people who don't just add this on to our lives, but that this would be the thing that defines us as being made new and whole and part of your kingdom, your rule? It's worth everything. And Jesus, I, I just want to pray and invite those who are here to pray with me. If, if there are areas of our lives where we need to say, this is yours and not mine anymore, Jesus. That this is what I need to maybe figuratively, maybe literally sell to buy the field. It's yours, God. My relationship my job, my finances, my time. It's yours. Use it for your kingdom's work. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to